Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Go over this introduction, highlight how it's brought out in each one of these, these letters, and in the introduction there is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. People study the book of Revelation for different reasons. Some are curious about the future. Some are attracted to its prophecy and the promise of getting to see how it's all supposed to end. Others uh, like the perceived mystery of the, of the letter, uh, which they, they, they believe they can use for their own twisted ends. If you search for books written on Revelation, you'll see exactly what I mean. There are hundreds of them, uh, many claiming secret insight into the letter, the Revelation Code or something like that. Prophetic literature like Revelation is commonly used for, for those claims because people think that they can hijack the symbolism and see a deeper meaning. The thought of secret codes found in the imagery is just too tempting to resist for, for some. I mean, who hasn't run across the headline of the guy who saw Jesus in his Cheetos or the Virgin Mary in their morning toast? Uh, there's actually a site that I don't know if it still exists, but whenever I, I preached Revelation uh, years ago, there was actually a site called 22 People Who Have Found God in Their Food. I mean, there's just, there's just something tantalizing for, for certain folks uh, about being overly spiritual like, like that, like, like there's more power in that in, in some way, in the, in the mysticism. And I, I have a much simpler method myself. I just read the Bible because the Bible is God's revelation. And it clearly, it, 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 it's, it's God's authority, it's a Christian's authority, and it, it's plain. Unfortunately, though, the thought of being able to find a deeper meaning gives, gives certain folks a... Uh, an outlet to see what they want to see, and that's the real danger. The, the, the extreme danger of doing something like that, especially whenever you're, you're dealing with, with God's Word. When, when you look for a deeper, deeper meaning in the symbols, or you follow some mystical prompting in dealing with God's Word, the issue is you become the authority, not the Bible. Your, uh, uh, um, what, what you see in the mystery, in, in the symbolism. Like I've shared this with you before, I know I have. I, I can remember a, a seminary professor telling a class full of students about this idea about deeper meaning. He's with the Lord now. Just asking, I mean, how do you not know that was the devil that, that put that thought into your mind? Or, as he said, maybe just bad pizza. I mean, thankfully, we don't have to play those games. I mean, the Bible is God's revelation. It doesn't contain it. It is God's revelation all the way down to the, to the grammar. And the purpose of the Bible is to make things clear, not, not obscure things. So we're not left guessing what, what God meant. I mean, you don't have to contemplate your pancakes. You, you can actually read and understand His truth. And the book of Revelation is no different. I mean, the Bible is, is God's Word, and it's, it's called a light and a lamp. I mean, and he doesn't hide truth like a, like a secret painting of Where's Waldo. I mean, that's true even whenever God gives a vision in, uh, to a biblical writer that's full of symbolism. And he uses this symbolism, like in apocalyptic literature, to communicate. Even in those cases, he's always clear. And he explains the purpose 
of, of, of revealing truth. In fact, we're encouraged to study the book of Revelation because of the blessing it, it contains. And, and, and if, if it didn't contain the blessing or we couldn't understand it or only certain people could understand it, then, then God surely wouldn't tell us to study it. And one of those blessings is a reminder from Jesus that we're not alone in this world and that the end is unfolding exactly as, as he attended, intended, I should say. Look, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Here's the vision that John, John sees. Let me show you this. He says, I, John, in verse 9, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are called Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In verse 12, it starts this vision that he sees. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears a voice, and here's what he sees. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And he sees something, and pay attention to the words that I emphasize. And, and, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of them, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand... He held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in, in its strength. I mean, verses nineteen, or verses nine through twenty, is a vision of, of of the Son of Man, Christ, who is present amongst His churches. And, and while the vision itself has symbolism used to describe an indescribable vision, I mean, if you had a vision, you saw the risen Christ. How would you describe the indescribable? Well, you would use symbols. You would things like, it was like this. It's very clear, though, who this is and what the message is about. This book has seven literal messages to seven real churches from a personally present Savior, from which Jesus diagnoses their actual spiritual condition and then communicates a corresponding cure. I mean, the key to interpreting prophetic symbolism as a vision, in a vision, is not focusing on the symbol itself, but on what it's revealing. In this case, the person that it's revealing. What is it teaching us about, about the Lord and His character? And this passage clearly shows you. Here's about the characteristics of Jesus that His church needs to be reminded of. It's not some random description. And His unshakable plan for the ages, which the church needs to hear about, and God makes history's hidden realities visible through this book and through the symbolism that's there. So we don't need to get hung up on, is this China or is that a nuclear warhead? But what is the truth? What's the Lord unveiling? And that's very plain in the book of Revelation. It's kind of like reading parables, what people do with parables, which parables have one major point. You don't need to get caught up into the weeds of what every little thing means, like the birds mean this and the tree means that. I mean, John here is communicating God is showing his church will triumph regardless of whether the, the lamb with two horns in Revelation is the United States or not. I mean, Revelation unveils the unseen spiritual war that the church is engaged in. 
The church in Asia was very aware of that war. They're right in the, right in the midst of it. And while they waited for the Lord's return, Jesus sends the message of revelation, reminding them that He's already won and He's in control of everything. It's written to strengthen the church to fight, to, spray, to, uh, to stay pure in this present world order. I mean, and Christ is in the midst of His church. This Christ, described in this way, He holds everything in its place until He comes in judgment. And he carries the church in the palm of His hand, and He has the purity and the power to do exactly as He promised. And today we'll look at another message that He sends to, to His church in the midst of that world. And that message is found in... Revelation 2, verses 18 through, through 29. It's a message to Thyatira. And that message provides um, information. It's very intolerant, quite frankly. It provides an intolerant message to an overly tolerant church. Are, are you a tolerant person? tolerate things well? Is it good to be tolerant? Well, it depends on what we tolerate. I mean, some older folks go south over the, over the winter because they can't tolerate the cold well. Your doctor may ask you if you're tolerating your medications, if you're some illness that you're going through. I mean, both of those are examples where tolerance is a good or a neutral thing. We can also become tolerant of tolerant of things that we shouldn't, like, like error or sin. One of the worst labels that someone can give you in our day is, is to be intolerant, closed-minded. I mean, Broad-mindedness in our day is exalted as a character trait. I mean, in your grandfather's day or some of your great-grandfather's day, the greatest character trait would have been hard work or courage or duty. But today we're praised if we, we kind of have this attitude of live and let live which, of course, applies to, to anyone other than a Christian, right? You ever notice that those who preach tolerance the loudest are the most intolerant people that you know? And Christians are to be tolerant of others, but it's, but it's okay for, for everyone else to be intolerant of Christ. That's because fallen man doesn't like that God is the absolute authority, and, and the Bible, it, Bible is His Word, and, and so that's really what they're chafing against. And this may come as a shock to you, but... But God describes Himself as very intolerant. I mean, he's merciful toward sinners. He's slow to anger. He's quick to forgive. He doesn't tolerate sin forever. There's a moment when His tolerance runs out. In fact, He says in the Bible, He hates things. It's a strong word, isn't it? I mean, you think God loves. God surely does. God is love. But the Bible uses the term hate. God has an inner disposition set against sin and wickedness and evil. He, he hates certain deeds, like those of the Nicolaitans that we, we, we just heard, or pursuing discord in the church, or in the Old Testament, or a haughty, haughty look. I mean, he hates teaching. It's contrary to his word. He hates the bad result that sin brings in people's lives. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is long-suffering toward mankind, but, but He's not accepting or easygoing or open-minded when it comes to these other things. In fact, the Bible says when His tolerance runs out, He will judge, which is what is described in the future in 
in, in Revelation. And in the message to Thyatira, he calls his church to be just like him. This letter is, is called the message to the corrupted church. It became corrupt because it tolerated sin. It didn't mimic their, their Lord. And you can see the progression in this message with, with the last one. I mean, Pergamum was flirting with, with false teaching. Church flirting with compromise. And Thyatira, they were falling to it. It had already infected the church. It had taken hold. And this letter is the longest of the seven written to the smallest church. I mean, Thyatira is a small town about 40 miles from Pergamum. We've already started downward now. Went up and started down. It's in the interior of Asia Minor. It was known for its purple dye. It's mentioned one other time in the Bible in Acts 14, or Acts 16, in verses 14 and 15. Uh, a woman named Lydia comes to the Lord. You might recall in that passage uh, that describes her conversion. She was a merchant of this of this dye, which is which is purple and was made from matter root and also rock snail. A church had nothing major to boast about spiritually. There was no apostle attached to it. No significant pastor training or church planting center in Ephesus. Uh, it had no claim to fame in the earthly world or the New Testament and. And remember, there are many other churches in Asia and beyond during, during the time when this letter was written. So it's remarkable that Jesus would single out such a small church in such an obscure place for such an important letter. It's also significant that this is the most severe of all seven letters, which obviously should cause us to pay attention. And the letter is a message about the path to apostasy and the sin of tolerance. I mean, what happens to a church or a person who goes too far? Is it possible for somebody to go too far? And, and the letter answers that. I mean, what happens to those in a church or connected to a person who, who, who does that? And the letter answers that as well. There are two audiences in the message, even though this is written to, to one church. There's apostate individuals. They're subjected to judgment. And then there are authentic believers that are rebuked for the, for the sin of acceptance, but they're preserved. One group is past repentance in this letter, and the other is called to repentant action. But the message to this little church reaches far beyond the immediate circumstances it reaches to us today, because the Bible says, in the church's garden there is growing both wheat and tares, even this morning. And as a church, we're called to take great care and not pull up small plants that are, that are immature. We're, we're told don't be like, like pigs rooting around in, in Christ's garden and just rooting things up. We're also called to take out shears, and to clip off apostate ears, apostate ears, I should say, uh, once their condition is clearly known. So when it's, when it's unclear, then, then leave it be until it becomes clear. And then when the teaching becomes clear, then the church is called to, to act. Or to say it another way, you, you must not cry heretic too quickly. But when error is clearly evident, we're called to be very intolerant people for the sake of the rest of the flock. Or you could say it this way, God expects His church to maintain purity by, by dealing with sin in its midst and and when it refuses, he's forced to intervene, and he, and, and he will. The, the outline of this letter has, has four parts. 
It's instructions on dealing with the sin of tolerance. There's the church's discerning judge. There's a description of Christ that's drawn from this this vision that we saw in in chapter 1. Then there's the visible church's condition, like the visible church. It's everybody in the church. And then there's the authentic remnant. There's a, they're, they're true believers in the midst of this visible church. They're exhorted to do some things. And then the overcomer's promise. The promise that's coming in the future earthly kingdom of Christ in verses 26 and, and, and 28. The picture of Christ, the judge, the church's compromise, and then the, the remnant's exhortation and the promise of the, of the kingdom. What do you would at verse, verse 18? It's the church's description of this discerning judge. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. The Lord follows the same pattern as the other letters. He begins by giving a description of himself that corresponds specifically to this church's situation. It's like holding up a diamond and turning it in in another angle of the light to see another perfection of the Lord. And here is deity is described. And he's the one with discerning eyes. He's also the dominant ruler that we'll see at the end of this verse. But, but notice the first thing he emphasizes is he's God. To the angel of the, of the church of Thyatira write, the Son of God. And this is a, a description that's already been used of Jesus back in verses 14 and 15 with one major difference here. He describes himself as the Son of God here, not the Son of Man, like, like in chapter 1. I mean, his deity is everywhere, but, but all the other descriptions, including the vision in chapter 1, use the term Son of Man, which links it to the Old Testament prophecy or promise in, in Daniel. Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. There's Christ approaching the throne of of the Father. But this is the only place in Revelation. He's called the Son of Man in in chapter 1. This is the only place in Revelation Jesus is described as the Son of God. And it meets the specific need of the church. The church's diversion from the true worship of Jesus was so serious that it called him to reiterate his deity. This is who you're worshiping, the Son of God. It indicates that that there were some that had left the boundaries of the faith. It reminds them of where the dividing line is of, of being in Christ and out of Christ. I mean, we can differ on style and music and preferences, but some in the church had, be, had gone beyond all of those matters to the place that they no longer worship the real Jesus. I mean, I'm sure you realize this, but, but it's possible to, for people to confess Jesus with their mouth, but deny Him with your lifestyle, deny Him with their lifestyle. But, but did you know that what you believe about Jesus indicates whether it's true worship or not? I mean, Jesus is the God of the Old and, and New Testament, and anyone who, who describes Him in any other way or describes someone in any other way is not God even if you use the same name. And the Jesus of Islam is not the same Jesus that the Bible presents. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness is not the Son of God. The Jesus of Mormonism is not the same Jesus that that, that you worship. 
You might think of it like having a name, but then the contents of that name, who's the, who the individual is, who he claims to be. I mean, they're not just different perspectives on the same figure, but figures with completely different attributes, completely different objective facts, which change who the person is. The Jesus that saves you from your sins is, is the Son of God who, as God, has laid down His life as a substitute and, and was buried and raised from, from, from the dead. This Jesus sees, he has discerning eyes. I mean, this, this, this goes straight at a, a, an ecumenical idea or many paths to God. There, there's one God, and it's Christ, and this God sees. Look at verse 18. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. His eyes, he sees. And he sees him with penetrating discernment. He sees like, like fire has the ability to purify. Christ has penetrating insight in, in judgment. He's perfect awareness. There's nothing that God does not see. And, and what he sees, he interprets perfectly. Again, is applied specifically to the need of this church. That's because there's nothing hidden from his sight. He sees what happens whenever we're, whenever we're alone. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. He sees what happens in the dark. Jeremiah 23, 4. Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Secret places. Dark places. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? He, he knows our thoughts and even our motives. Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before there was a, a word on my tongue, even when it's just thought, I haven't spoken it yet. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. Luke 12, 2 summarizes all of his ability. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or, or hidden that will not be made known. I mean, unlike us, God discerns and he renders verdict flawlessly. And while he'll do that at the end in judgment... The books will be open and it will be plain. There's a measure of discernment which he's provided for us in his word. Look at Hebrews 4.12. We looked at this last week. It's the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow. And it's a discerner. It's discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God... It's a discern. That, that means as Christians, you have the ability to discern, not perfectly, but clearly. It means that as a Christian, you don't have to play this game of go fish. Guess what's right and wrong? Well, you can't see my heart. You're right, I can't. But, but, but the Word of God discerns what's right and wrong, and clear actions, which is why we're called not to do things too quickly before it's very evident, but whenever the fruit is plain. Or whenever there's a teaching that's clearly contrary, then we are called to, to not only discern, but to judge, to act. The Word of God is specifically given to us for that purpose. I mean, that sounds elementary, but I can't tell you how many Christians, professing Christians, I've heard say, I know what the Bible says, but... Ever heard that? Or, that's one interpretation, but I think... Or even more seductively, people trying to use one of God's attributes to nullify His Word. I mean, 
God is a loving God, so, so He wouldn't create hell. That's one example. Or God wants me to be happy, so, so, so He'll understand why I'm doing something clearly contrary to His Word. So they pit an attribute of God or a perceived attribute up against something that, that they de- desire to do. So dangerous to make the Bible your own private interpretation where you're the only one who thinks something. One writer said, listen, whatever God is and whoever God is is always consistent with the Bible. And if you ever think otherwise, you are wrong. Just plain. While our evaluation of things can be flawed and tainted, being excessively harsh or sympathetically lenient, God is perfect in all of His understanding. And the Lord of heaven always does right. And that includes His judgment, which is what He's pronouncing on a group of followers of apostate teaching here in in this this book. He's also a dominant ruler. He's God. He sees perfectly. He's a the dominant ruler. Verse 18. The angel of the church of Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. So something about his feet and what his feet are like. I mean, Jesus is described as having firmly planted feet. I mean, this, this if you were in Asia Minor, you would have understood the, the, the analogy here very plainly. I mean, and these feet are shining like like polished metal. This is an echo of Daniel 10.6, where the Ancient of Days appears with legs that seem to gleam of burnished bronze. And there his feet, which describes his dominion. I mean, the Bible talks about how God will tread down his enemies or he'll place them under his feet. Something that you've read in the New Testament. He'll be put under his feet. And that's the idea here. Gleaming bronze represents the purity and strength of his rule. It'll be strong, and it'll be it'll be pure. Jesus has eyes to see into the most distant and darkest places, and with such feet he can stamp out all opposition to his rule, one commentator said. I mean, that's how he describes himself, which is what's meeting the, the, the need that hasn't even been revealed yet about this church, which, which indicates that it's a scary need. If you have to be reminded that Jesus is God and that He can see everything and discerns and judges perfectly, and He's also one who puts enemies under His feet, then what's coming is scary. And He starts to describe that that next. The second is the visible church's condition, verses 19 through 23. They're praised for their compassion and they're indicted with the corruption that's in their midst. Verse 19. He says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than, than that at first. I mean, he starts with a, with a commendation. God's so kind. He starts with what he can praise them about. And there are some things that, that he can say is good that's happening in the church. Their love, their faith, their service, and they're growing in these things. I mean, it's interesting that they're praised for their love when the other churches are not, giving how severely that they're about to be rebuked. And contrary to the church at Ephesus, the quality of life in, in the church was not dismissing here. 
this church actually tells us that it's possible to have good things going on in a church which also has gross sin and horrible teaching amongst its members. That's encouraging in one sense. And they were growing in good deeds. But they were also guilty of a great sin. Verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and they eat things sacrificed to idols. I want you to pay attention to the pronouns here because it, it shows you the different groups that are being addressed. He, he says, I have this against you. And it's singular, so it applies to the church, but, but, but also the leadership of the church. He declares judgment against her, a woman that is titled Jezebel. And there's a warning of discipline against those who follow her teacher. And then in the next verse, there's a promised destruction for her spiritual offspring. It's going to kill some people. There are four different groups covered in, in, in this indictment. There's a tolerant church and its leadership in verse 20. There's this apostate teacher in verses 20 and 21. The seduced Christians in verse 21. And then there's the converted counterfeits. In each case, they're being dealt with according to their works. Look at verse 23. He says, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. I mean, God not only has perfect eyesight, but He's a just judge. No one will ever get what they don't deserve. And no one will ever have one sin that goes without judgment. People do things that they get away with, it seems. Maybe someone's done that to you. No one will ever have one sin that goes without judgment, which is why you should fly to the Savior who forgives all of them. The church is indicted here, though, for the sin of tolerance. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, that the leaders in the congregation tolerated. It, it, it's a word that, that means to, they, they let it go, to leave, to pardon. It, it has the idea when it's used like this of allowing or permitting something to remain that shouldn't remain. There's not something questionable, this is something clear. It's plain, and they, they left it there. Some of the church didn't engage in the sin of Jezebel or fall into her bad teaching, but they permitted it to, re, uh, to remain and, and did nothing about it, and so God indicts them for that. Not for the sin of her or her followers, but, but for, for allowing it to remain. You would assume this indictment is of the leadership, better the elders. All failures doctrinally will ultimately depend on leadership. Leaders will actually address it or not. I mean, there may be error in the pews, but, but godly elders will courageously deal with plain error. You have a choice in how we communicate what's right and wrong, but, but, but as Christians, we don't, we don't have a choice in deciding what is right and wrong. The, the Bible describes that. God in His Word declares that for us. We also do not have the option of, of allowing sin in the church to go unchallenged. Again, there's ways to do that. But the purity of the church is the first responsibility of the elders and then also of the body. 
Notice the apostate teacher, the second group here. The apostate teacher is indicted for the, for the sin of corruption, corrupting the body. Verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. And the result of that, notice there's a result. She, she teaches and leads them astray, and the result is so that they commit acts of immorality, things sacrificed to idols. Her teaching leads somewhere. I mean, there's a woman in the church that was corrupting God's word, God's people, and God's worship. She calls herself a prophetess, which means that she claims to speak on behalf of God. That's what a prophet did. And right off the bat, there are two glaring sins right here. I mean, right? I mean, they're very evident. Here's a woman teaching the congregation, which is a sin. And second, she is leading them to do evil things, which is very plain in the text. I mean, Jesus even gives her the name Jezebel, which is probably not her given name. I mean, who would name their daughter Jezebel, right? It, it, but but it, here, it's used to emphasize his disapproval. Jezebel was the wife of the, the Old Testament King Ahab, who was wicked, and his wife was even worse. I mean, in 1 Kings 16, she led all of Israel into Baal worship. This New Testament Jezebel did the same thing and taught others to do wickedly. And, and she used God as, as her authority. Examples of this all, all over in our day, TV preachers claim to speak on behalf of God or claim to see secret insights, claim to get words from the Lord. There are also people that are not as obvious in that way. I mean, they, they may even accurately say, I mean, certain things that they say may be accurate according to Scripture, then something else is, is slipped in there. Maybe it's not even done up front. Maybe, maybe the, everything that they say is, is accurate up front, but, 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 but there's something off and it's going to come out later down, downstream. Which is why you should be careful who you follow, especially people that are very young in, in the faith. I've heard me say before, read dead people. You know exactly how they end, how they'll end up. You can see their whole lives. Somebody who is 30-something may have lots of zeal, and I praise God for, for young men that are, that are on fire for, for the Lord, but that's not enough time in the crockpot to see how the meal is going to end. Listen to people like John MacArthur, where you, you've seen his entire life, and you know how it's going to end. Warts and all, I mean, he's not perfect, but you at least know his commitment where he's going to end. In fact, James 3.1 says it's so serious to be a teacher, to claim to speak on behalf of God. James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers. My brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I even think about that in our culture. I mean, this is discouraging people from becoming pastors or teachers or missionaries. Versus anybody can do it. Go be, a, go be a world changer. This is let not many of you become those things. Why? Knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. And Jesus even said to his followers, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be hurled into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to, to stumble. Those are serious words because it's a serious task. 
So you, you prepare for that. And she did that very thing. I mean, this woman taught and seduced God's people. It says she teaches, leads my bondservants astray. She does the wrong thing, and it ends in the wrong place. So she has an audience, and it's not the unbelieving world. It's, it's, it's Christ's bondservants, those inside the church. These are Christians, at least some of them, that are listening to her. So, so don't forget to look for the devil in here, as well as out there. Their teaching led them to think wrongly, and her, her seduction helped them. Do, do wrongly. I mean, she specifically taught them to, to mingle the church with, with the world. She taught believers that they could coexist without being disloyal to, to Christ. I mean, we don't know exactly what, what she was teaching them. We know the result of it. It had something to do with the pagan temples. You go to pagan temples for business, but then you could follow Christ in the church. Was it dualism? You know, whatever you do in your body doesn't matter. Your spirit that, that, that matters you know very clearly that Christ forbids it and the result. Notice the use of the word adultery. What's the play on words here in verse, in verse 22? Verse 20, it says, so that they commit acts of immorality. And in verse 22, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they... They repent of her deeds. I mean, every other place where it's talking about this kind of sin, the word fornication or immorality is used, but Jesus chooses adultery here. It's the only place in Revelation. Pergamum was practicing spiritual immorality when they offered incense on a pagan altar. They, they unwittingly fell into self-deception, but the followers in Thyatira were, were, were seemingly knowing. They were pursuing other gods, and they were committing spiritual adultery. Jesus says this isn't just a moral violation, this is a covenant violation to their, to their relationship with Christ. There was hope for these seduced Christians. There was judgment for her counterfeit converts. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. She doesn't have adultery, because she's not the Lord's. She doesn't want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. He says, unless they repent. These, those are hopeful words. I mean, those who followed her would face tribulation. If they don't repent of her works. Those she had converted that had been brought into her teaching would, would face destruction. Again, two groups here. God calls those who had bought in to begin with to, to repent. That's good news. You can sin greatly. You can even believe things contrary to Scripture and return to Christ. But those who become her children, children of this apostate teaching. They were awaiting judgment. Because as long as you follow bad teaching, only bad practice can, can follow. You understand what I'm saying there? I'll give you an example. I mean, you can commit sexual sin, even gross habitual sin as a Christian, and be forgiven. But you can't believe fornication is permitted by God and escape, escape judgment. 
Because you hold to a teaching that actually keeps you from repentance. Which is why the first step in repentance is confessing sin as sin. I mean, you can't repent of something if you don't think that it's sinful. So following her bad teaching was that this is not sin. And so those who were her children that she'd given birth to, that, that had bought completely into her teaching, don't have the ability to repent because they don't have any idea what they're to repent of. They're, they're thinking wrongly. You can't repent if you don't believe it's sin. Just the Bible also means about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not wisdom. It's where you can find wisdom. It's the beginning of it. The first step to becoming wise is to acknowledge the source of truth. And then that truth tells us what, what, what's right and, and what's wrong. And you can be, you can be in, in, in a very wrong place doing really bad things, but if you still come back to the Scripture and see what the Scripture says, that that's wrong and that's bad, you can confess and you can repent. But if you never get there, you stay over here where it's not wrong and it's not bad, then repentance will never come. Beware of bad thinking. I'd be far more dangerous than bad behavior. Because it leads there, holds you there. So the third section is authentic remnants exhortation. The visible church, Christ is judgment. The visible church, there are wheat and tares there. And now he speaks to the wheat. But I say to you, the rest who are at Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, very specific who he's talking to, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. They call them. I place no other burden on you. He begins with a but. Thank God for the contrast. He, he says, but to the rest of you, those who do not hold this teaching, and this teaching is, is I see things that you can't see. I know mysteries. I can show you the specific code, and that's going to free you to do X, Y, and, and G, a Z. They, they call these things the deep things of Satan, these deep mysteries. Those who have not defiled yourselves with satanic, the satanic practice of sin, I, I ask nothing of you other than to be faithful. Which simply means a refusal to succumb to the bad teaching and then a rejection of the ways. So encouraging here. You don't need to know all of the false teaching of the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons and, and you know this cult and that cult and everybody else to, to stay pure. That's not what God calls you to do. He just says, follow me. Don't buy into it. Stick with the Scriptures and reject the ways. This is kind of like an echo of Acts 13. You remember where in Jerusalem or the Jerusalem Council where there's a bunch of Gentiles coming into the church with all kinds of stuff. The elders in Jerusalem were asked to give direction to Christ's followers that were not Jews, that didn't follow the law or its ceremonies. And so the question is, what should they add to their lives as Gentiles coming from all this stuff? And the answer was nothing. They said, just don't offend your fellow brothers or go back to the temples. Other than that, follow Jesus. I mean, following Christ is not a complicated list of behaviors you have to learn or other things that you have to avoid now that you become a Christian. It's just following a person and learning his ways, which is revealed in Scripture. Your life will be transformed from what you were. You better believe those Gentiles were transformed when they started reading the Bible and knew Christ. They were changed. But it's not something 
placed on them from the outside. It was something that, that came from within. They're transformed as they read the Scriptures. It's a relationship. He's your Savior. You're His loving follower. And those who know Him that way will enjoy that relationship for forever. There's the overcomer's promise in the, in the kingdom. Verse 26. Is he who overcomes, the ones that are won't be destroyed, obviously, the ones who repent, the ones who even haven't bought in and who hold fast, the teaching, he who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end. And then notice your Bibles will probably change font here. Mine goes to bold printer of all capital letters because it's quoting a passage from the Old Testament. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces. And then it converts back to regular font. As I also have received authority from my father, and I will give them the, the morning star. I mean, they, they who they were to hold fast until he comes. And when he does, it says the kingdom's not far behind him. This is one of the places in Revelation that gives us insight into how the kingdom of Christ is going to unfold. This is actually a quote from Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, which is a messianic psalm. It's, it's a psalm about the kingdom, how, how, how Christ is going to reign on the earth over the nations. Messiah will rule over the nations in his coming kingdom. You might remember Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. Psalm 1, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 is this kingdom with a king that's going to rule over the nations. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware king reigning on the earth, over the earth, over the nation, in his kingdom. What's the trigger, though, stated in, in, in verse 25? Look, look at verse 25, if you would. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. I mean, hold fast is a very strong word, meaning it will, it, it will not be a, a smooth or easy task to, to do this while you're waiting. But those who do, are to do so until He comes. And the trigger for this reward that He's talking about to the overcomers here is the second coming of Christ, it, it, when He's going to set up His, his earthly reign. And it's going to be a reign over the nations. Notice the same authority that Jesus receives from the Father, though, is going to be shared with the overcomers. It's going to be shared with, with believers. Look at verse 26 again. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give. Now, in Psalm 2, that's to Christ. But here the overcomer is, is linked to this promise. And Jesus says, as I have received authority at the end of verse 27, as I have received authority from my Father, I will give him, the overcomer, the morning star, 
questions about what that means. Is Christ coming as, as the morning star? Probably so. But the point is Christ has been given authority. This authority is going to come out in the kingdom, and he's sharing that authority with the overcomers. It's been delegated to him by the Father, and he will share that. And when Christ comes to set up his earthly kingdom and will rule and reign with him as his followers, he'll give them a place in the kingdom based on their faithfulness here which is to share the rule with, with Christ and, and His kingdom. What an amazing truth. The extent that you're faithful, you don't add anything, no, no list or otherwise, you, you're faithful to the king, it's reigning right now over your hearts, it's in heaven, it's coming again to reign over the earth. Until then, you're here, subjected to the king, and you submit to him, you... You don't buy into false teaching. You stick with the scriptures. You, you stand. You, you believe. You, you persevere. You do those things. And when this king comes, the extent that you do that, there, there, there will be a correlation to your role in the kingdom. The word for rule here is the word for shepherd. You'll, you'll reign with Christ. You might be least in the kingdom now. It's a small church in a small place, obscure, but one day in Christ's kingdom, he'll come and he'll reign with you. But to get there, you have to know him now. You have to follow his teaching, which is the Bible. Even though the whole world doesn't. Even though there are certain people who claim to speak on behalf of God, but don't. And again, that can be hard to discern, and that's one of the roles of an elder, the plurality. There's just not just one man like me giving my private interpretation, but a group of godly men affirmed by the church that are instructed in the scriptures that, that it's plain. It might not be plain to you, so is it, is it plain to them? Is it orthodox? Is it changed by the culture or, or otherwise? And You don't pull the trigger too fast, but what is plain? Stand there. You follow his teaching, which is the Bible. Those who do that, Christ is returning for, and we'll rule and reign with him whenever there is a right kingdom. We've been studying a lot about the, the kingdom in preparation. And one of the things that has just been such a blessing to my soul reading in the Old Testament and the echoes in the New about what the kingdom is going to be like, the earth is going to be like. It's a beautiful place. I was driving this morning and it's, it's winter. No leaves on the trees. The Bible describes the earth like that before the kingdom comes. Things are dormant. And when spring comes, the leaves start to green. Or in the morning, the, the sun begins to dawn describes the earth like that, the, the earth groaning, waiting for the unveiling of the sons of God. And the earth will be restored. And it will be in, 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 a, in a place that, that will be even better than Eden. Where Christ is literally reigning. You'll be with Him. What an amazing day that will be. When everything will be made right. And even the curse that you that, that, that is so evident around you will, will be 
will be done away with, will be, will be suspended. And that's the promise for those who, who follow him. So one of the first things you have to ask yourself is where do you fall on in these pronouns? <laughs> I mean, do you know him? Are you convinced that the Bible is true? I mean, do you look to it as your sole authority? Is there some level of, of temptation you find that there's more authority in something, something mysterious? Whenever there's plain teaching, you know, otherwise, if possible, be drawn in that, in that way? Do you evaluate all the teaching that you bring in? Um, are you struggling with sin? If you are, it might be how you're thinking about the sin. I mean, the issue, you've been struggling with it, might not be overcoming it. It might be how you're thinking about it. You're, you're not thinking biblically about it, and therefore that's, that, that's keeping you bound up, keeping you from overcoming it. You, you must repent. In order to do that, you have to call it what the Bible calls it. The whole letter then ends with these familiar words. Verse 29, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This means this is a message for, for us to, today. I know it's hard at times, and it's hard to, to discern everything that comes down the, the pike, and we try to hold and wait on that, but it's not new. This is going on in early 90s AD, hard, hard corrupt time now. But the Lord's in the midst of his church. And the Lord's given us a very clear word. And the Lord Jesus is coming again. And we look forward to that coming. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus. You are the king. We look forward to your coming kingdom. And as you have called us, we bow the knee to you. You are our authority, and your voice is in your word. We follow it. We submit to it. We confess to you. Like, like Peter, there, there are things that are hard, hard to understand. But those are minor. There are things that we try to, to, to grasp. Some we have to just acknowledge we're, we're limited by our humanity. We, we say, you know, all the, the depth and the wisdom of God is past our finding out. But most of what we have, Lord, is plain and clear. You love your church. You've given us a clear word. And I thank you that we're able to, to see it and stand on it. Help us to continue to do that. Not add things, not take away, but follow you, our Savior, until you come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.